subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Good afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today? All righty. How's it going with you, Cliff? Nothing's ruined my day, and I'm almost done with it. So not bad. Not bad. Prepare to have your day ruined. <laughs> I can always count on you, Bobes. No. Everything good? Everything good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, just uh, kind of working the shop today. It's the end of the day. It's uh, getting close to 5 o'clock here. Nico's downstairs shutting up the uh, the museum and everything. Pretty uneventful day, didn't? Um, but for the most part, I've just been looking forward to the Q and A because this is my favorite episode that we do every single month. Uh, the Q and A episode, and followed up, of course, by the members only Q and A. So, if you're a member of our podcast, which is a Patreon thing, if you can always become a member if you'd like, um, you can uh, submit special questions, and we do a special follow up members episode as well at some point during the month. But this is the regular one, open to the public, and all of these questions, of course, come from you, the listeners, and some of them are on voicemail because you can actually speak to us. You can go to the website bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com, and uh, under the contact button, you can leave a voicemail for us with your own voice you might be able to hear on the uh, podcast with Bobes and I, or you can just type in a question if you're a little concerned about your voice. So anyway, that's what we're going to be doing today, Bobes. If you send it psychically, I'll get it. Yeah, exactly. If you send it psychically, sit down cross-legged and um, maybe with a Ouija board or something like that. Or, you know, if you're a Windows cleaner, you can have a squeegee board. But whatever you do, you can focus on Bobo and trans- transmit the transmission to the Bobes. And, um, and Bobo will write it down wherever he is. And you can present the question to one of us. Well, the psychic ones wouldn't come right now because they're going to hear it. Then send the psychic message for be like a week or two from now. That's the problem, Bob. It's like if you're opening yourself to psychic transmissions, you're going to have to write these things down and organize them somehow. It's kind of a lot of burden on you. Maybe we shouldn't do that. All right. Well, I'll give it a test run and see how it goes. Yeah. Put on your tinfoil hat from that uh, Finding Bigfoot episode of Mount Shasta. That was a tinfoil helmet. Oh, my mistake. My mistake. From your roller skating days? <laughs> roller derby roller blade perhaps you want to start a fight cliff go right ahead <laughs> anywho bobes you ready to jump into this thing i'm ready okay let's take the first question then hello cliff and bobo greetings from the uk where a class of curious primary school students at all saints school in norfolk uk we have been researching all about bigfoot in our english lessons our task is to persuade our head teacher that Bigfoot is real. I don't believe in the existence of Bigfoot. I think it is all one big conspiracy theory, even after all we've read and heard. I totally believe that Bigfoot is real because all of the amazing evidence people have found over the years. To help us with persuading our head teacher and my fellow student here, we wondered if you could let us know what's your most convincing piece of evidence in support of Bigfoot's existence. Thank you for your time. We hope you can finally help us with our writing project and we hope you finally find Bigfoot. Keep it squatchy from the, the upper juniors at All Saints. That, they're supposed <laughs> to be learning English? How can they talk so weird? It's a different country, Bobo. They have different accents. <laughs> Dude, it's time for the, teach- for the students to lead the teachers. One of those old saying kind of proverbs. Well, I was a teacher for a long time, and you know, being a teacher basically means you're a good learner. So let's let's hope that the teacher in this particular classroom uh, learns a little bit from their students and uh, how enthusiastic they are about learning about the evidence of Bigfoot. 
Of course, our question is, what is the most compelling evidence of Sasquatch? Bobo, you want to put, give, give us your take before I jump in? My eyewitness account. Your eyewitness account. Yeah, I mean, that would be <laughs> compelling, right? Yeah. No, there's the obvious. I mean, it's the same evidence we've had for a while, but yeah, it's the unidentified primate hairs, the tracks, like you always say, they're congruent in their features, the PG film and Freeman and a few others, uh, brown footage and compelling eyewitness testimony. Yeah, those are all, all the a variety of different kinds of evidence, and each one is compelling in their own way. Um, I would argue, if I had to narrow it down to a singular thing, you can't. And I think I've talked about this before a little bit. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, whereas you know you have a jigsaw puzzle, you buy the box, you know that it's it's a beautiful landscape or something or a sailboat, and you're looking at this this thousand piece box full of puzzle pieces, um, and you're saying, and it's kind of like asking. Which of these puzzle pieces is your favorite? Well, it's kind of meaningless until you piece it together. And that's the same thing about Bigfoot evidence. Bigfoot evidence, I think it it should be viewed as some sort of puzzle in a way. Because say, for example, the, the, the footprints. The footprints are extraordinarily compelling. If you know a little bit about what lies underneath the skin, the bone structure and whatnot, they're extraordinarily compelling. That The placement of the metatarsals is interesting, of course, because the metatarsals have been shortened to lengthen the heel, which is a biomechanical need of a, of a biped walking in a sim- something like a human way, although Sasquatches don't really have a human gait. They have a human-like gait in some ways. And um, in order to carry around a mass of that size, well, you'd have to have a heel that is elongated for biomechanical mechanical reasons. It's kind of like lengthening the arms of a wheelbarrow if you wanted to lift something heavier, um, which is essentially what you're doing by, or what evolution is doing by lengthening the heel on the Sasquatch foot. Sasquatches walk bipedally. They're much heavier than us. Even if they're the same height, they're much heavier than us. And to to, uh, make it so they have to exert less energy to move us forward, the heel segment is elongated. Okay. Well, the function of that is, uh, well, a side product of that is shortening the metatarsals. You can see where the metatarsals lie in these footprints due to the damage done to the ground by the foot as these things walk by. You can see where the metatarsals are. And that is because Sasquatches have a flexible mid part of their foot. They do not have a longitudinal arch in the same way that we do. Um, Our arch keeps our feet from bending in this particular joint, even though we have the same bones. We're, we're apes and they're apes. We have the same bones as they do, but we can't bend our foot in that same spot. But Sasquatches can, and we know where that spot is because of the footprint and it's a signature of the underlying anatomy. But the thing is, that bendability in the foot, okay, that's super important because not only, as I mentioned earlier, is it the necessary biomechanical redesign of the foot, um, to carry a mass of their size, but uh, that's that the location of that bend is consistent in the footprints. Whether we're talking about a footprint from 1958 from California or one from Ken, uh, Kentucky in 2022, it's the same location, and which should be true of a species, of course, yeah, because they're all kind of built more or less the same. But let's go one step further. Let's take in another puzzle piece here. How about the Patterson-Gimlin film? The Patterson-Gimlin film, sure, there's 10 or so, actually there's 16 footprints that were documented very well at the Patterson-Gimlin film site, Um, 12 of them in plaster casts and four other footprints um, uh, in photographs. But, oh, and every one of those prints shows some indication of the midfoot flexibility in the exact same spot. All right, but let's, again, let's pull in another puzzle piece. You can see the creature's foot bend 
in that spot. So there we go. We have the footprint cast evidence. We have visual evidence of that same feature in the same place. That's what I mean by a puzzle piece. You know, we can talk about the um, how the metatarsals seem to be shortened, and that's a necessary biomechanical the, the heel length that the heel is longer, and therefore the metatarsals are shorter. Necessary bio, biomechanical redesign. That's one puzzle piece. We can look at another puzzle piece. That location is consistent amongst the the footprint cast data oh, and footprint photographs as well. It is consistent for decades and decades and decades. That is another puzzle piece. We can take the Patterson-Gimlin film and look at where that thing is bending. That is another puzzle piece. You see what I'm doing here? We're building a puzzle. And that puzzle, when it's all said and done, paints the Sasquatch as a biological entity on the planet that is real and exists. Um, and that is the kind of thing that one needs to look at. You can't look at one piece of evidence and say, oh, yeah, that does it. Bigfoots are real. Unless, of course, it's a dead body on a slab. But at this point, when we're just dealing with evidence without a type specimen, without a holotype, we have to take a few steps back and be willing to put in the work. We have to be willing to put in the work to learn about the variety of evidence and see how it all fits together like that puzzle I keep talking about. Um, it's not going to be one thing that convinces you unless, of course, you know you have a sighting then that should be pretty compelling, even though I've spoken to several people who have seen these things and still have doubts whether they're real or not, which is, to me seems weird. But people are weird. I'm weird too, so it's all right. But you have to have the patience and the wherewithal and, as, and the curiosity to drive you into the data, into the evidence, and start looking at this thing not as one piece of the puzzle that's going to convince me, but you have to have some patience and kind of start piecing these things together to see how they fit together to paint a picture of the Sasquatch. So that's a really long-winded answer, and I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it is, man. At this point, there's not one thing that's going to convince your teacher, but hopefully your teacher, being a good teacher and a good learner, has that driving curiosity to pick up the pieces of these puzzles and start looking at them to see how they fit together. Because when your teacher does that, he or she will see that Sasquatches are real. Amen. Hallelujah. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess we cleared that. Have you heard that you got that, lady? <laughs> You're lucky to have students that are uh, so interested in something as fantastic as Sasquatches. Exactly. Put your nose in books, kids. Keep reading. And you will, you will see the, the, the puzzle materialize before you as well. What do we got next? I don't know. Hey guys, um, you know, appreciate the forum here to ask a question this way. Uh, the question is a kind of a serious one regarding DNA. Uh, it, it seems like there are, uh, you know, in lieu of a body, of course, that is the best way to, you know, gain traction with the scientific community. Certainly, we've we've have a number of DNA samples, is my understanding. You know, mitochondrial DNA from the from the hair. Uh, there have been a lot of stool samples that are that are quite compelling, the DNA from that, and then the newer kind of E or environmental DNA. The question is, from what we have, is it a matter of funding, meaning that, like Dr. Meldrum talks about, all of those gates and all of those kind of nuances that need to be sequenced and all of that little, little, uh, those little things that take money and time and things like that with samples? Is it a matter of funding, or is it a matter of we just don't have the the types of samples needed uh, to to achieve what you know to, to get something compelling in a in a full sequence or a near full sequence that would be compelling scientifically. 
appreciate the answer on this. I think there's a lot of, you know, confusion out there with, you know, people that do follow this kind of on a more serious level as to, you know, why these DNA, either previous studies or the samples we have now more recently aren't enough to do a full, uh, a full sequence to have something to compare to or have something compelling to the scientists. Thank you. Well, I think it's a combination of funding and also the quality of samples that we have so far. Um, there aren't very many super compelling samples, frankly, uh, what it comes down to the, uh, the hair stuff has kind of been a wash. Nothing's really come out of that. Um, any sort of, uh, flesh samples or something the, either the, the studies have been fumbled and it didn't come through or the, the, some uh, contamination, there's been all sorts of issues. Um, eDNA is promising. And I think that the Dr. Meldrum's nest samples, his core samples he pulled out of the Olympic Project nests, showed a lot of uh, promise. Um, but when they were tested, it came back as human. So maybe it's contaminated, or maybe as Jeff and uh, Bobo and I discussed on the podcast, maybe it's just we didn't get enough information. Yeah, well, he said that it could it could have been, but they only could open so many windows of the like. There's like a thousand boxes you can that each have a little door to open, and they could only open like. Um, what was it, a hundred of them or something? Yeah, well, a small number. Yeah, and, and we need a, a larger selection of these little windows to look through to try to figure it out. And that probably has something to do with the proximity between Sasquatches and us on the tree of life, so to speak. You know, uh, obviously, we're very, very well. Not obviously, I, we I suspect we're very closely related to Sasquatches. I mean, we are what a ninety-eight point something or other percent identical to chimpanzees in our DNA. Um, which sounds incredibly close, and it is, but mind you, we're 60% identical to earthworms. So, it, you know, life is all related. It was basically what it comes down to. And if these things are paranthropines, like I suspect they are, um, well, they're, they're going to be even closer, uh, more closely related to us than chimpanzees are, 99% or more. You know, maybe we didn't open the right windows, the metaphoric windows to peek through, and we didn't get the differentiations. Maybe we didn't get the differences. Uh, Todd Disatel disagrees, but of course, he did the tests. Um, I spoke to Todd about this, and he says, no, no, I could tell you even like down to the ethnicity of the person. That who, or I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Maybe that's true. Um, but but Dr. Meldrum, of course, uh, is suggesting that, well, I think uh, a, a full sequencing of the genome would be necessary, and in which case, we're looking at six figures or so is what he said. Um, but to be fair, to be fair, um, I, I constantly check myself and what I try and what I say, like, I'm, I'm always looking at what I'm saying. Is that right? I don't know. I'll revisit it in a couple of weeks and find out. And I, and even though I have immense respect for Jeff and, and I kind of consider myself a meldermite in a lot of ways, um, I also continue to check what Jeff says because we're all humans. Who knows? I, I don't know anything about, I don't know much about DNA. Um, I'm, constantly trying to learn a little bit more. And, you know, if Jeff says something, say, okay, well, that's probably true, but maybe, maybe there's, uh, maybe he's missing something. So even as recently as three weeks ago, Moneymaker reached out to me with a possible sample and I went searching through my, 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 uh, my PhDs and whatever for someone who might be interested in checking it out. I found one and there's something being tested right now. It's a hair sample with possible follicle. So I thought that was interesting. And, um, so that's out there somewhere. I kind of just made the connections and I don't know how far they carried the ball. I don't know anything about it, but another PhD was interested in carrying that ball a little bit. We'll see if it goes anywhere. Um, and maybe that is the quality of sample we need because the, uh, mitochondrial DNA that is found in hair is always from the medulla, right? But as you, as listeners probably know, one of the characteristics of Sasquatch hair is that it is either missing or has a fragmentary medulla. 
Well, that so that's kind of stacking the cards against us from the get-go. Um, but this particular sample supposedly had a follicle, and that's where we can get um, the nuclear DNA there. So, um, so we'll see. We'll see if anything comes out of this. But I think it's an, a combination of funding for the full genome sequencing, as Dr. Meldrum was suggesting, which would be fantastic, of course, um, and maybe just the quality of samples. Maybe the mitochondrial DNA is not going to cut it. And then there's also, this. I don't know, Bobo, I don't know if you've read this, um, the mitochondrial integration um, paper that's on the relic hominoid inquiry talks about that uh, if any if any of these um, rumors that we've all heard of uh, Sasquatches interbreeding with humans are true, then it's entirely possible that the human uh, mitochondrial DNA has kind of become um, ubiquitous in the Sasquatch DNA. And there's a paper on the RHI. You can go ahead and read it if you want. What I've always said, by the way. Well, yeah, it might be true. Maybe it's true. For as many words as I'm saying right now, I really don't know very much about all this stuff. Um, it's not really my thing. I mean, people go on, they get, they get degrees and master degrees and PhDs on just what we're talking about. And, you know, I've got a degree in jazz guitar. You know, I can play a Stella by Starlight for an hour, you know, but that, that's, that's an entirely different set of skills than what we're talking about, genomes and stuff. Um, I would encourage you to, to read the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, particularly this paper, and actually all the papers are fantastic, and just kind of be optimistic about it. Um, I, and even though Dr. Meldrum says, eh, I'm not sure that's a good way to go with this, well, I found another PhD that's interested, and maybe something will come out of that. Maybe... Um, and it's no disrespect to Jeff. I just think it's a good idea to, to try as many avenues as possible. This other particular um, PhD, um, if, if, if he gets anywhere with it, then hopefully we'll hear about it. And, you know, maybe, and, you know, if he doesn't get anywhere with it, maybe we'll learn just a little bit more about how to go about it. Um, I think every chance we get, we should be throwing a little bit of money at this sort of thing and a, and a lot of effort towards this sort of thing. Because even if it's not possible to get a, a, a strong species identification out of it, maybe we can learn just a little bit more and push that ball a little bit further down the field to get a little closer to the goal by, ev by every failure that we have. Failing is the best teacher. And luckily, I, I learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, let's go ahead and listen to the next question, please. Love the podcast. Love the Patreon. But what I would like to know is, besides the Patterson-Gimlin film and the Freeman footage, which is your favorite Sasquatch footage? Thank you. And keep it up. That's what she said. Um, I, I, I got to go with the brown footage and then the uh, Yowie footage that um, Gary and Dean, those, I forgot the guy that was actually holding the unit, but he was like his first and out with those guys ever, so I'm not sure who he was. But that, that Yowie footage that they got, the two Yowies, I think that's really good. And then Joe Purdue's, I like, I like Joe Purdue's. Once we get to see that good uh, comparison video, the size, that should be, if that is as big as they thought it was, then that's going to be pretty compelling too. Well, you know which one I really like that doesn't get any play at all that I that as far as I can tell is real. I mean, it's taken on a really like a low quality flip phone, I believe. Um, even back when flip phones, you know, like were new, you know, the smartphones didn't exist at the time. Um, it, 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 I don't even know if, we, if you can find it, but it's called the um, Easterville footage. 
if I and again, I'm I'm probably incorrect. And if, for people listening out in this particular area, if I am correct or if I, if I am incorrect, please forgive me. I'm wrong all the time. And if, and feel free to write in to us at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast at gmail.com and let me know about it. But Easterville footage I found extraordinarily compelling. Um, it's it was taken on I, I, I was it the Cree Reservation? Oh, that's a stretch, man. It's really stretching my memory. And again, if I'm incorrect, forgive me. But out at Easterville. Ontario somewhere, these two native guys are walking down the road and they see one of these things and it, it, it you can see the arms moving and it's grabbing lee, like branches out of the out of a, the it's kind of standing right next to what looks like a bunch of alders or or some tree that they have over there and you can see the arms go up and brings it down and it's it's pretty pixelated because of the quality of um, camera that was being used at the time, um, but. I was. It was on the Bigfoot forums way back in the day. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That. Yeah, and the two guys are speaking back and forth in an in indigenous language that I clearly don't understand. But somebody on the forums way back in the day um, said that uh, they translated it and saying like, "Oh, there's the big guy" or something like that. Something, some, some loose translation like that. Um, that one I've always found to be very, very compelling. Um, I really like that. It doesn't show a lot of detail, but. I have seen no reason to think that it is fake or a misidentification. Oh, you know what else I'd say is Memorial Day footage and then the Turner Main footage that we investigated on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a very good piece of footage. It shows some very, very interesting behaviors. What was the other one you said? Memorial Day and what? Gosh, the uh, with the Boy Scouts down below that. Oh, oh, the uh, Marble Mountain footage. Marble Mountain footage. That one I like, but, you know, it means more to you because you were there. You actually went to the location and did the recreation. There's not a lot you can see in that one in some ways. Yeah, there's. if you see the recreation, you're like, oh, my God. Things, it's not much taller than me, but it's way, way, way wider, like twice as wide. Oh, that's interesting. I've always thought it was proportioned rather strangely as well. Like it doesn't quite look human in shape. It vaguely looks human in shape, but not quite. Well, you can't even see my arms and legs on it, except for like they look like little stick line drawn because the way the light wraps and bends up there like uh, on those old cameras, and it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I look like nothing compared to that thing. It, it, a lot of people thought I was 10 foot tall because of that branch it walked under, but that was just an optical illusion. Well, you know, uh, what's interesting, since you brought the Marble Mountain footage up, um, there's another piece of footage that is not publicly available. You can see it at the North American Bigfoot Center, and that's it. Um, it was taken in 2019, I think, down um, by Roseburg. It's called the Roseburg footage. It's nine minutes of footage. Uh, this, this woman was waiting with her um, patient. She's a social worker or health worker or something, waiting with her patient outside for a taxi cab um, in Roseburg, and this thing walks across. I've already told this story in the podcast. I won't go too far into it. But that's a pretty interesting piece of footage, even though it's nothing you can take to the bank, you know. But it, it's super interesting that this thing walks out of the woods a across uh, with no trail on private logging land, sits down in the middle of a patch of poison oak and hangs out and does stuff. I don't know. I'm not sure what it's doing. You can see its arms moving and stuff, but it's sitting in a patch of poison oak for nine minutes being filmed by this woman. Well, like Bart Cortino's uh, Sierra thermal footage, if you watch the whole 10 hour documentation and what they went through and Leiterman and him and a few others broke the whole thing down for like 10 and a half hours, comparisons, charts, all that. It's, you know, they're, they're way bigger than a human. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the footage that we're talking about here is thermal, of course. Oh, we didn't even mention the Sierra Gate footage. Oh, right, right. Yeah, another excellent piece of uh, thermal footage. But again, if to get away from the therm stuff, 
Oh, well, before we get away from the therm, fuss, we, uh, therm, therm stuff, we have to mention my greens footage. Oh, squeaky. Yeah, the squeaky footage is excellent. That's up there. That's that. Yeah, that's that's top three. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mentioned uh, how the Roseburg footage, the thing sits down in the middle of Poison Oak, but very rarely is it mentioned that uh, the squeaky footage, that thing crawls up through Poison Ivy, which you found out firsthand, Boba, when you did the yeah. recreation on Finding Bigfoot. And the moneymaker got secondhand because I whipped his hat on it. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, God, I mean, I think we over-answered that question because what's the most? That's the problem about asking us the best, the most, our favorite, any of those things. There's too many to choose, just one. Yeah. It's like asking which of, which of your kids is your favorite. I think, again, I think we over-answered that question. Well, you know, one that's going around, I keep getting sent to me the last month or two, is the uh, swamp tree destruction video where it has its back turned like it's squatting down a, a, a swamp. Oh, I think I filmed a skunk ape one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Coles did work on that one and kind of discovered that the name of the witness is actually the name of a TV character. And um, and so that he connected the two and it's generally thought that to be a fake because that, for that reason. But there's a, there's a person out there, and you know this individual as well, who claims to have interviewed the witness and thinks it's real. Really? Yeah, so we should probably get that person on the podcast. Let's see if we can line that up. Really? Really. The moneymakerism. But yeah, we can try to get that person on the podcast to see if uh, they'd be willing to uh, speak to us about that. All right, well, anyway, there's your answers. There's all 40 of your answers for our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, which, which letter of the alphabet's your favorite? Okay. All of them. All right, here's our last voicemail before we get to the written ones. I am very curious on... Uh getting into the old school four horsemen of bigfootings books but where can i find them on audiobook it's just so much easier for me to listen to them on my commute i would appreciate that very much dudes keep up the good work bye just call me and i'll read them to you straight from the book itself there you go the story time by bobo <laughs> i don't think <laughs> none of those are on that kind of like audiobook i don't think i don't are you aware of any of that no, I'm not aware of any uh, audiobooks from the Four Horsemen because, uh, yeah, I mean, that, of course, the Four Horsemen are Peter Byrne and Renee DeHinden and John Green and Grover Krantz. Um, they all have books out there, uh, but I don't know of any audiobooks. That's interesting. I'm, I'm sure this guy's looked on Amazon. Yeah, it's kind of not too many of the older books like that. I think I think that's more of the thing that they published as they got when audiobooks were became a thing i think it's more ones published since then those are the, those are the ones that are usually read yeah i mean i th probably the best you could do i mean i believe this 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 exists like if you get um like like say uh, i'm looking right now i picked pulled up amazon or whatever uh, uh, it says sasquatch apes among us paperback and there is a kindle version um so and i think on kindle there might be a it'll read it to you function, you know, like some, I know you can do that on computers a lot of times. It doesn't have the intonation and whatnot of a human reading it to you, but that might be the best way to do it is get some sort of computer version of it, like a Kindle audio or that, that kind of book, and then see if you could uh, get it to read it to you. That might be the best way forward on that. Well, I can do a, a producer butt in if that works for you guys. Sure, sure. sure. Unfortunately, when Hancock House made those books into Kindle books, they scanned the physical copies and uploaded them as PDFs. So like most Kindle books are in a text format where you can manipulate the font, you can search within the book, you can highlight bits of font, you know, words, sentences, paragraphs, et cetera. With the classics, 
that Hancock House produced, Apes Among Us, Krantz's Bigfoot Sasquatch evidence, they are images. They're scans of those pages. So you can't search within those texts. You can't highlight text and export it or highlight it the way you can other notes. So unfortunately, with those particular ones, it, it wouldn't work to do that. So I, I really wish Hancock House, David Hancock, if you're listening, I would love it if those got converted somehow. And if you're looking for someone to uh, read those, I'll do it for cheap. I don't think David Hancock owns it anymore. No, he sold it. Yeah, I heard he might have sold it. Uh, yeah, we order from uh, the Han- from Hancock House quite often here at the North American Bigfoot Center, and I speak to the, the um, a, a woman there particularly. But I, I'll, I'll put a bug in her ear about that because um, audiobooks they're useful. People a lot of a lot of people listen to these things in cars and stuff. But you know, um, getting back to the question a little bit, if you are interested in the Four Horsemen, I hope you have seen Sasquatch Odyssey. Sasquatch Odyssey is a, a documentary, and it's been pieced out and little bits have ended up in other documentaries and stuff. But Sasquatch Odyssey is the original one, and it basically is the only DVD that features all of the four horsemen in small little bioptics, basically. Small little biographies and interviews and stuff with each of them. Then they were all old and towards the end of their life when this documentary was made. Um, but it's a very, very interesting documentary, and it's really cool to see all four of them even though they probably would never be in the same room together, even when they're alive. But uh, it's kind of neat to see them all in the same documentary together. So you might want to check that out. And it's not just because we sell it at the NABC either. It's just a, well, anything we sell at the NABC is a pretty good product. I guess I should preface it with that. But um, definitely pick that up at some point. It's probably on one of these streaming services too. So check it out. Sasquatch Odyssey. All right. So there you go. That was the last audio question. But if you would like to ask us an audio question and hear your voice on the air, um, be sure to go to BigfootBeyondPodcast.com and hit the contact button. And then you can leave us a voicemail and ask us any question you want. Amazing, cool questions, ridiculous nonsense questions, personal questions. But anyway, let's get on to the first written question. And this one comes from Joseph Miller. He says, love the podcast and miss the TV show very much. I was wondering, how did Bobo get his nickname? What's the story behind that? Oh, well, when I was a kid, I was Jimbo. Then my older brother, we saw that movie Dumbo. So he'd always start singing, Jimbo, Jumbo, the big fat Dumbo. I said, don't call me that. So I tried to change my name to Jim. So, of course, he doubled down on the bow. So it became Jim Bobo. Then our next door neighbor, Danny Palazzato, took it. Uh, he started calling me uh, Bobo Belinsky. I guess he was a pro wrestler. So they, they became Bobo Belinsky, and then it just got shortened back to Bobo. And I hated it, so it stuck. <laughs> Bobo, if you if you weren't called Bobo or the Bobes or any of these, you know, Bobo derivatives, um, what would your name be? Like, what would you prefer it to be? Oh, prefer it? Yeah, because I've, I've always looked at I don't see you as being a James for some reason. Ace or T-Bone, something like that. Ace or T-Bone. <laughs> that's cool no i i'm i'm into that that's cool that's cool so that's that okay ace <laughs> remember t-bone george costanza <laughs> well i just i, I love the t-bone things i would want to name you after a steak flank ribeye salisbury <laughs> <laughs> skirt yeah <laughs> okay skirt skirt, skirt fay skirt fay Skirt ribeye fay. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. 
Um, we got one from Ontario Richardson. What evidence are you seeing that is breaking the paradigm of what we thought Bigfoot's behaved like in the past? Um, I think everyone's surprised at how close they come in, like on their bellies, like crawling into camps, like right on the edge of camps. Like Tom Shea's had that a couple times. I've had it uh, when I was with Leiterman and Mel Skahan. We had them that time up in the Redwoods where they crawled in on their bellies, like real, like 25, 30 feet from us. But people have seen them even closer. Like Tom Shea said it was about 15 feet from him at one point. Yeah, that's true. So I think in that and that how they don't always approach from uphill, like, because that was always a kind of the thought, like, no, they're always going to come from uphill. And that's not been my experience. They come from all directions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think the uphill thing, it, it was a good start, but it didn't it didn't hold because um, basically, I mean, the, the reason we thought uphill is because they want they want to be safe. It's the um, the castle and moat motif that moneymaker kind of coined that term castle and moat um where they are in the castle and there's something in between something between you maybe it's a bramble bush maybe it's a river maybe it's just a steep incline but the i think the point of their behavior is um they need to feel safe and sometimes that safety comes from being below like like we see in the um joe purdue footage or it's not joe purdue's footage but he was there at the time and that's how we heard his term yeah it was his term that counts for something that counts for something and a lot of people have seen the, uh, or that time that you and I were at the water spot and the thing approaches from down below. It's a castle and moat thing. They have to feel safe. I, I think another, um, I, I, what I, I believe is a misconception about Sasquatches um, is uh, that they are uh, solitary individuals. Oh, yeah, that'd be the biggest. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think that you, sometimes, sure, absolutely, sometimes they're alone. But I do think that um, they're very often with other individuals, maybe not within 20, 30 yards of those individuals, but probably within a half mile or more of those individuals. You know, that's kind of interesting about with the trackways, because most trackways are found that are solo individuals. Maybe they're like, they're, you know, they're more, maybe they're not so concerned about like, they're just worried about themselves. They don't have to worry about the whole troop or clan or whatever they're with. Like when they're by themselves, or they will motor, you know, like, kind of a little less cautiously and that's why their footprints are discovered with uh, singly maybe I, mean, I don't know maybe that's just thought yeah maybe but you know for for the model i i see them moving uh, or I, I i i the model i use what i imagine them doing is say like two or three or so of them maybe occasionally four or something like that are within a quarter mile of each other kind of move moving the same kind of direction. And I've heard this. I've heard them knocking back and forth to each other um, up in the Sierra Nevadans, up in this meadow. Then they were kind of sweeping their way through the meadow over a period of like an hour or so. And they would knock back and forth. And they seemed to be maybe not pushing or something like that, but moving down the meadow. Um, I'm assuming there was some sort of choke point or something down there. I don't know, but I, I think that's a big misconception. It's, I don't think they're alone as often as people think they are. If there's one in the area, there's probably a handful of other ones not that far away. Another thing is that people thought you had to go way out in the middle of nowhere to find them, like go way, way out, like travel for days off, you know, backpack. And they're, they're closer to people and closer to civilization and towns and houses and ranches more than people ever thought, unless you're one of those people that lived there and experienced it. But for the you know the casual observer and even the Bigfoot researcher, they're surprised at how close they are to, to people. They're not they're not as they're not as deterred coming near us as we thought. They're they don't want to be seen by us, but or discovered. But they will come around us quite a bit. 
100%, man. And if I may quote Tom Powell here, you only own your property during the day. Yeah. They don't care about what your expectations are. But you know, that brings up another one, Bobo, that like it's a huge misconception that some of the old timers still hold on to um, is that the Sasquatches are a Pacific Northwest species. And that's it. That's been out of vogue for decades, but some of the old timers still kind of grab onto that and are, have this white knuckle grip on this misconception. Because um, John Green did a cross country trip in the 1970s before he published his book, uh, Sasquatch Apes Among Us. Um, and Turned up tons of reports from all sorts of states. Um, but yeah, there's still some folks out there that think it's a mostly Pacific Northwest phenomenon. Um, but is, that is simply and obviously not the case. Okay, the next question comes from Glenn Hawthorne. Glenn asks, if a specimen of a Sasquatch was ever obtained by you, whether through a hunting kill, road accident, or simply found by someone in the wilderness, would you immediately present this find to the media or keep it on the down low? What would you do with the remains? Give it to the Smithsonian? Donate it to the man at Idaho State University? That's Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Do you have pre-plans already made up for such an event? I mean, Bobo, you and I have thought about this quite a bit. You want to take it first? Sure. I mean, what I would do is, uh, depending where it was, what the situation was, is it's summertime, it's 100 degrees out, the thing's rotting. How big is it? Is it an 8-foot, 800-pounder, or is it a 6-foot, 250-pounder? I mean, there's... Uh, you know, if you think maybe um, if it's really fresh, you think the uh, other Bigfoots, if they find it, are going to take it, you know, take the remains and go bury them or hide them, whatever. Um, take take the head if you can, but those that can be pretty big and heavy too. So uh, at least a hand or a foot. And how would you cut off the head? I mean, you have to have tools for that. I mean, yeah. But you you know, let's just let's set up a circumstance for you, Bobes, and make it easier, okay? Okay, so you're you're driving you're you're driving back uh, from you know uh, up in um, Del Norte County somewhere. You're on 101. Um, you smack one in Trinidad with your truck, and and it, it, to bring one down with your truck, it's got to be a small one. So we're going to say this one's five and a half to six feet tall, and it's two two three two or three in the morning, and, and it's by a rest stop somewhere. You knock it off the side of the road. It is in the drainage ditch. That's your scenario. What do you do? I'd be careful to make sure there's not a big one with it. And then I'd try, I'd just do what I could to get it in my truck. And then if the whole thing, you would take the whole thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. If, even if it was a bigger one, I'd, I got, you know, I got toe straps and stuff in my truck. I'd tie it off and drag it somewhere where I could hide it better if I could, or just so it couldn't, didn't get discovered. Um, I, I wouldn't call anyone right away. I think I'd just drive. I'd drive out to Idaho and just go straight to Jeff. Start driving to Pocatello, Idaho. And um, in, in the meantime, start calling Jeff every 20 miles until you get a hold of him. I'm not calling Jeff at all. I'm just going to show up. How would he know you're there? I show up. What, the, the lights come on and people announce it and the band plays you in? Like, what happens when you show up to Idaho? Like, you don't know where Jeff lives, right? Um, I just go to his lab. And then wait it out. <laughs> break through the window. The alarm goes off. They call and say, hey, your lab got broken into. He comes down. I go, what's up, Jeff? Jeff will be like, hey, Ace. <laughs> <laughs> a tenderloin. What else we got here? This one comes from David Pesek. Have y'all noticed that the Christmas movie Elf has a Patterson-Gimlin tribute position in it? In the scene from where the elf's hiding in Central Park, he looks over his shoulder while moving through the woods. Yep, that's well known for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a, and, of course, there's another Will Ferrell movie, uh, Anchorman, that has a reference to um, Bigfoot in it. Let's keep it clean. 
Oh yeah, I'm not going to say it. Um, everybody who's seen the movie knows, and if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. It's kind of funny. Um, maybe Will Ferrell's a fan of Bigfoot, or maybe he just thinks Bigfoot is funny. I don't know which one. It doesn't matter to me. We win. Oh, you know what? Speaking of Christmas movies, what was that movie? Uh, it had the Humble Bumble and all that. Oh, um, the Rudolph, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah. Um, I just saw, I was watching Antiques Roadshow the other night, and they had the uh, original... What's the little elf guy, Gary or something? And Santa and Rudolph. Uh-huh. The guy bought it for like, I don't know, like five or eight thousand dollars. He bought, I think it was Rudolph and Santa, I think it was. And uh it's now worth like over a million dollars. No kidding. Fifteen years later, yeah. Where's the bumble? Did they mention that? I think uh he had some of them back he had more of them at home in an attic or something. Wow, the bumble would be a score, wouldn't it? Oh, completely. Holy smokes. Because, you know, the Bumble is basically the source of this idea that the abominable snowman is white, like white colored as opposed to brown colored, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Yetis don't, I mean, for our listeners, Yetis aren't white. Yetis are, uh, you know, they're like Sasquatches. There are probably some white ones, of course, or light colored ones. But, you know, they don't live in the snow either. They live down in the valleys and between the snow peaks and the saddles and all that sort of stuff because that's where all the food is. Um, but it was that, the Ru- Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with the Bumble that kind of gave that idea to the public, and it kind of stuck. Well, it was in some dime novels, too, like paperbacks, like those cheesy, you know, quickly written ones. They had um, they had some of those with the abominable snowman that were white on the front, too. Yeah, well, with a name like Snowman, you could expect that, I guess. Yeah. But in, in popular culture, I think it was the Rudolph thing that really gave it root. Yeah. Well, we got a next question here. It's from Denise uh, Day, D-A-I-G-H. Um, hi guys, as a Long Beach native, I left there and headed to the mountains of Idaho. Are you aware of any reported sightings in the Teton range in Idaho and Wyoming? Thanks. And I enjoy your show and commentary. There's none. There's none there. It's not in the Pacific Northwest. Exactly. So no, no, actually that it's, it's great. Um, the Teton area has a lot of stuff. Oh, lots. Yeah. That, that whole area in, in Wyoming and Idaho and all that sort of stuff. In fact, um, the BFRO report page. Yeah, BFRO report page will have information on that. Um, the Mangani Bigfoot maps might be a good resource for you if you can dig those up. They haven't been updated in a lot of years, but it's still one of the best resources as far as the local sightings go. Um, the Wind River Range, it looks like this uh, Teton, is, is, is if it's not the Wind River Range, it's right next to it. Um, that's where um, John Mainzinski has done a lot of uh, research. I've seen footprint photographs from that area. I've never seen a cast from that area. But um, I've seen footprint photographs from the Wind River Range in that general area. The whole area is very, very good. In fact, that that not too far away, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a drive, but the, the Kootenai National Forest up there in the Idaho Panhandle in that area is super good. And, it, and that area is one of the world's only inland um, temperate rainforests. That area gets almost as much rain as like Forks, Washington. It's amazing. I was up there. I went camping with Flippy on the show up there on the solo. I was blown away. There were so many springs and there was just lush green plants. It was, and it's a little bit warmer than the rest of the spot. And, you know, and, uh, up in that area too is where the Bauman start took place that Theodore Roosevelt wrote about. Yeah. Yeah. One of the offshoots of the Salmon River up there. Yeah. That whole area is, is excellent. Excellent. And of course, uh, Yellowstone's not far away. There's a bunch of stuff in Yellowstone as well. Um, yeah, that, that whole area is good. And, and, and by the way, this person is from Long Beach, California. So, 
good move. Not that Long Beach isn't a lovely place to grow up, but at the same time, you got to like head out of the town, out of, out of town, man. It's crowded and cement. Not a bad place to grow up, but I wouldn't want to live there. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I often say I had the sense to get out. I mean, it was, it was great growing up, of course, lots of music venues and lots of opportunities to play music with bands and things and the beach and everything. It was wonderful. It was absolutely great. Catalina Island and offshore and stuff. Great. But you know, I've chose mountains over the ocean at this point. What's the next question here? Rump roast. Tim Harada. I often hear scientists cite the lack of a fossil trail when arguing against the possibility that Bigfoot or its ancestors migrated from Asia to the Americas. Are there other species fossil trails? How conducive to fossil development and preservation is the land from Asia to the Americas? Well, it's underwater now and it was under ice for a long time after that that stripped everything off of it. So there's not much there. I know that they found uh, red panda fossils here in North America. They did? They did. They did, which is a totally Asian species. I didn't know that. That's not surprising to me, really. Yeah, I'm not up on my paleontology. That, that, that's really more of a question for Nico, and that's something I would toss to him. As far as like what is needed for fossil development, it's a very specific set of things. You know, First of all, it has to be sedimentary rock. You know, it has to be like in some sort of wash and something like that. And um, the 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 animal soon after death has to be covered. So that way, the the uh, um, the other scavengers and whatnot won't get a hold of it. Um, and so it's very rare for any animal to fossilize, any animal at all. Um, and I think that the the scientists are now saying we they think we have evidence of like perhaps two or three percent of the different species that ever lived, ever lived in fossils because that's how rare fossil evidence is so we're lucky to have all these dinosaurs and stuff and you consider the fact that what he's mentioning and specifically the land bridge trail is yeah it's underwater and then a lot of it that wasn't underwater got stripped by by giant mile high glaciers yeah that's another problem too because um not uh, humans are a, a wonderful example of this and i think sasquatches would follow hand in hand with this um very likely I, i'm gonna go out on a limb and say the majority of uh, the, the the transplants, the people and the Sasquatches that came over probably hung out by the coast quite a bit because that's the most plentiful food supply. Huge um, numbers of, uh, say, like like human evidence, you know, like uh, um, uh, fire pits and settlements and all that sort of stuff of the people who came from Asia. Um, they'd be buried under the ocean at this point. It'd be underwater. There's no chance of getting to it. There's no, I don't think there's any. There's not a whole lot of like a the bottom of the ocean paleontology going on. Uh, it's just in the, the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, in the Arctic. Yeah, it's just too difficult. All right, Bobes. It looks like uh, we're we're fresh out of questions here. Yeah, and, and another Q and A is behind us. We got thoughtful. We got a thoughtful audience. We do. We do. Which is great because I think a lot of our audience, you know, they're clearly pe- people of uh, great intelligence and taste. All right, Squatchketeers, man, that's the last uh, Q&A for the year with, um, you know, Cliff and Round Roast. Rump Roast. Rump Roast. There you go. Um, Bottom Round. How's that one? (laughs) (laughs) All right, T-Bone. But we we hope that everybody does have a good holiday season and uh, next year is fantastic for everybody. We really, really thank you all for listening. Um, Remember, if you want to submit questions to us, you can go to BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com and do so. 
Other than that, we have merch. We have merch out there. If you want to go to sasquatchprints.com, you can order exclusive Bigfoot and Beyond merch. Uh, we have hoodies and shirts and all that sort of stuff. And am I forget? Oh, of course, membership. If you like what you're hearing and you you want more every single week, you can become a member uh, of uh, Bigfoot and Beyond. Be one of our patrons. It's five bucks a month, and you get 30, 40, 50 minutes of extra feature, or extra content every single week. Um, slightly less edited, a little more raw, around rough around the edges, edges, which we kind of enjoy. And so far, so good. Everybody seems to be enjoying the membership program. So if you want to help us out a little bit more, that's something you can do out there. Okay, folks, that's all from T-Bone and Porterhouse. And until next week, y'all keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.